This week, a class about Irish Catholics and 19th century New York City politics, including Tammany Hall. Christendom College professor Christopher Shannon explains. Despite persistent and clear expressions of loyalty and patriotism, and despite the, the real kind of human sacrifice of life in the Civil War, uh, after the Civil War, Catholics remained a people viewed by most Americans with suspicion and fear. A people apart, a people to be feared. More in a moment. Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, today's lecture, which I sent to you the outline in advance, is called Tammany Catholic. Uh, we'll be looking at uh, Catholics in American politics, really especially American urban politics in the late 19th century. And just to kind of put this in the context of what we've been looking at for the past couple of weeks, and what we've been looking at is this struggle for American Catholics to kind of find their place in American culture. Despite persistent and clear expressions of loyalty and patriotism, and despite the, the real kind of human sacrifice of life in the Civil War, uh, after the Civil War, Catholics remained a people viewed by most Americans with suspicion and fear, a people apart, a people to be feared. A variety of reasons for this. They were members of what was perceived as a foreign church based in Rome. Uh, they were, as we've seen, participants in a separate school system. Uh, and even just by the virtue of their status as members of the working class at a time when the working classes are coming to be seen as the dangerous classes, Catholics appeared to many non-Catholic Americans uh, as a people apart, a people dangerously apart. Uh, Catholic efforts to participate in mainstream American institutions only seem to make things worse. And this is perhaps most clear in the area uh, that we will look at today, politics. Now recall, from the founding, really even before the founding of the United States, many Protestant Americans believed that the hierarchical authority structures of the Catholic Church instilled submission and servility in Catholics. Again, recall that reading from John Adams on the canon and feudal law where um, he uh, described the Catholic Church as uh, the root of all evil in history, certainly the root of all tyranny in, in human history. Adams was not an outlier on this front. That was a, a common uh, component of Anglo-American political culture. And it was this submission to authority uh, that rendered Catholics bad citizens uh, in the New Republic, bad citizens unfit to participate in American Republican, this is again small r, Republican, political institutions. Much to the horror of native Protestants, however, uh, Catholics, and especially the most hated Catholics of all, Irish Catholics, turned out to be enthusiastic participants in the American political order. Whatever their relation to authority within the church, uh, Catholics embraced American political institutions and American participation in those institutions. Still, um, this did not prove that Catholics could be good Americans. If anything, native Protestants responded uh, by arguing that this participation itself was undermining the American political system uh, because Catholics did not understand the true nature of politics. What is the true nature of politics? I think that's something we're still debating today. Uh, but it is clear in the late 19th century in the late 19th century America, that Protestants and Catholics had different understandings of politics. And these uh, different understandings, I think, are, are best understood not as different political theories, but as different political cultures. 
the contrast between the, the two cultures, I think, um, was best expressed um, in the work of a mid-20th century American historian, Richard Hofstetter. On our outline there, I do have this written down for you. Richard Hofstetter's uh, Pulitzer Prize-winning book, The Age of Reform, written in 1955. It's about the period in the late 19th century into the early 20th century after the New Deal. And Hofstetter introduces this period uh, with this very illuminating contrast between two different political cultures. According to Hofstetter, one of those cultures describes as founded upon indigenous, that means Anglo, indigenous middle-class Yankee Protestant political traditions. This Yankee Protestant political tradition assumed and demanded the constant disinterested activity of the citizen in public affairs. Disinterested is the key here. Uh, Politics is not supposed to be about interests. It is disinterested activity. This tradition argued that political life ought to be run in accordance with general principles and abstract law, apart from personal needs. We don't get into politics for our personal needs. Um, In addition, uh, this this political culture carried with it the assumption that government should be, in a good part, an effort to moralize the lives of individuals. We've seen a bit of this already with the moral reform traditions uh, that started in the 1830s. These aren't these were directly political in terms of being part of political parties, but things like the temperance movement is probably the best example of that. Uh, that temperance applied to politics means that politics should be used to raise the moral level of citizens. That's one political culture. According to Hofstadter, there is another politi- political culture founded upon the European backgrounds of immigrants. So we've got kind of native Yankee Protestant versus immigrants. Uh, These immigrant cultures were generally unfamiliar with independent political action. These people did not come from republics. They weren't voting citizens in any way. Uh, Most of these immigrants were, however, very familiar with hierarchy and authority, not just Catholics, but uh, any uh, immigrant coming from a kind of a traditional peasant culture, these cultures are structured by hierarchy and authority. Immigrants come to America. Uh, they're not in search of political theory. <laughs> they are desperately in need of basic material sustenance. And they took for granted that political life would flow out of those needs, that, that politics was very much uh, about interests. Their interests, for them, largely the interest in survival, basic material survival. Um, they understood politics not as disinterested impersonal activity, but politics mainly in terms of personal obligations and strong personal loyalties, again, rather than allegiance to abstract laws or morals. So it's personal, this is personal politics in a kind of immigrant 19th century way. Uh, personal connections, personal loyalty. Uh, these two uh, ideal types, if you will, are political cultures, uh, can be somewhat abstract. I want to begin just by giving you a very specific example of this contrast, a real-life example from history. Uh, this example comes from a book uh, by the uh, historian Jack Beatty. Uh, the book is called The Rascal King. It's a biography of James Michael Curley, uh, an Irish Catholic Boston politician who, let's say, is a representative of that second culture. But this is what Uh, Beattie has to say almost as if he were just directly uh, following Hofstetter. Beattie writes, uh, an archetypal Boston story 
illustrates the resulting clash of political cultures. A Beacon Hill lady, now Beacon Hill, it's kind of an elite wasp on play within Boston, so think of that as standing for the first culture, the kind of Yankee Protestant culture. A Beacon Hill lady once went ringing doorbells in Irish South Boston on behalf of a high-minded candidate for the school committee. At one house, an Irish housewife listened politely to the lady's pitch for her candidate. And then asked, but doesn't he have a sister who works for the schools or has something to do with the school system? The Beacon Hill lady was shocked at what she took to be the suggestion of patronage. I assure you, madam, she replied, he is not the kind of man who would ever use his position to advance the interests of his sister. To which the South Boston housewife responded, well, if the SOB won't even help his own sister, why should I vote for him? And so that, that you know, captures that contrast more than anything else. Politics is about helping each other out in, in material ways. And you know, for this South Boston Irish woman, it's not about making a million dollars. It's just maybe getting a job for a sister or a relative or something like that. Again, very <laughs> economic interests, sure. Material interests, sure. But very, very basic at the level of survival, not enrichment. Enrichment. Now, Hofstetter, writing in 1955, uh, wrote, uh, he he described this contrast as one of uh, Anglo versus ethnic, native versus immigrant. And that's certainly true, but that's uh, that's fairly broad. Ethnic and immigrant can, uh, he's using those terms to include a wide variety of groups. They're certainly uh, not all immigrants were Catholics by any means. Uh, Many many Jews, Protestants, uh, even some Orthodox, particularly with with the Greeks. But in terms of how this Uh, conflict played out in mainstream American culture, it was centrally uh, a battle between Protestants and Catholics. It was certainly at the time understood uh, in those terms. And this this kind of religious uh, uh, aspect of this conflict is most clear in that first political cartoon I sent you. I think I I called it uh, Tammany Priest. A political cartoon by Thomas Nast, who was one of the, was very appropriately named Thomas Nast, since so many of his cartoons are very nasty, uh, particularly for Catholics and the Irish. Um, but in this uh, cartoon, uh, Nast again pre- makes very clear uh, the kind of religious dimension of this conflict. You have um, on the on the left hand of the cartoon, you have this ape-like uh, Irishman. So that certainly covers the ethnic and the class elements of this uh, political divide. But on the right, you have a priest. Uh, And in the middle, you have uh, a goose with the the, label on it, the Democratic Party, and the ape-like Irishman and the priest, who we can assume also is, is Irish, are carving up the Democratic Party, carving up the spoils, if you will, of local politics. And I, you know, I do want to stress... Uh, figures like Hofstetter and even uh, more recent historians tend to want to kind of downplay the religious element of this and really kind of stress class and ethnic, and I would say it's class on American Catholic history, and so I want to stress that it is impossible to view these conflicts apart from, from religion, that the, uh, the religious divide in America in the late 19th century uh, is as sharp or sharper than any kind of class or, or ethnic or racial divide. So you have this image uh, uh, from Thomas Nast, who is definitely speaking for the first culture, kind of the Yankee Protestant culture, uh, of uh, an unholy alliance in, uh, in urban America. Uh, 
an unholy alliance between uh, Irish Catholic uh, immigrants and an Irish Catholic church. This unholy alliance, uh, you know, generally associated with the urban uh, Democratic Party, but went by the more specific name of Tammany Hall. That's the lecture title today, Tammany Catholic. Tammany Hall was, a, was not the Democratic Party itself. It was a political club within uh, the Democratic Party. So think of, I don't know, uh, there's, there's Christendom College here, and then maybe there's uh, an SAC group, maybe the Contradance group. And if the real power in Christendom is in the Contradance group, they're the ones who control everything. And that's kind of how Tammany Hall uh, functioned. And it, it did give some specificity as well to the Northern Democratic Party. Recall we haven't had too much time to look at in this class. The Democratic Party, again, the, the oldest party in American national, is extremely divided regionally. Again, the Southern Democratic Party up until the Civil War was the party of slaveholding. Not a whole lot of common interest with the Northern Party. Uh, the, after the Civil War, it's not slaveholding anymore, but it is still, uh, still distinctly Southern and very, very distinct from uh, the Northern Democratic Party. The Southern Democratic Party is very Anglo, not Yankee, but certainly Anglo, native. They can claim to be true Americans. But the Northern Democratic Party, the Urban Democratic Party, uh, is heavily immigrant and so tends to be referred to more by this term uh, Tammany Hall, a political club within the Democratic Party than the Democratic Party per se. But this political club uh, in New York uh, controlled New York City politics uh, for uh, much of the uh, late 19th century and into about the middle of the 20th century. And um, the image that you have here, which is very much an image of Tammany Hall, certainly suggests evil and corruption. Again, from, from Nass' perspective, from the perspective of that first political culture, that is what Tammany is, uh, political evil and corruption. Uh, the reading that you have for today, however, Plunkett, of Tammany Hall uh, gives a different, more positive view uh, from, within the from within the culture itself. And so first we're going to, for the next part of class, go over uh, some of the history, uh, the most relevant history of Tammany Hall in the middle of the 20th century. And then after that we will look at some selections from Plunkett of Tammany Hall to give you uh, what you could say is maybe the, the, the response from within that second political culture. First political culture, looking from the outside, this is all corruption. This is destroying American politics and American virtue. Uh, from within that culture, no. It's not destroying American politics or destroying virtue. It's just a different kind of virtue, a virtue uh, very much rooted in uh, community, as we shall see. Uh, Nast, again, writing from that first uh, political culture, uh, anti-Catholic, anti-Irish. But all that being said, the charges of corruption, that Tammany was corrupt, these were not unfounded. In fact, uh, Thomas Nast first made a national name for himself by covering the exposure of such corruption in Tammany Hall politics um, through a scandal known as the Tweed Ring. And... Um, your next image uh, that, I, that I sent to you uh, of this image of Tweed alone. This is the Harper's Weekly, interesting, Harper's Weekly Journal of Civilization. But on the cover, there is this fat, fat guy, uh, and that is William Maher Tweed, the Tweed of the Tweed Ring, figure that still, I think, to this day, 
for, certainly for historians, is the kind of the symbol of corrupt urban politics. William Maher Tweed uh, was popularly known as Boss Tweed. Boss meaning that he was the, the, the boss of politics in New York. He was the one who called the shots due to his uh, position in Tammany Hall. Now, interestingly here, uh, even though some people might associate tweed, tweediness with uh, some Irish clothing, tweed was not himself an Irish, and he was neither Irish nor Catholic. Uh, he was actually, he, he was an immigrant, however. He was the son of immigrants, but immigrants of Scotch Presbyterian background. Now, think of this. I don't know how much of Irish history you all know. Um, but back in the old Assad in Ireland, uh, there is no sharper conflict than that between Irish Catholics and Scots Presbyterians, or in Northern Ireland, it would be kind of Scotch-Irish Presbyterians. They were sworn enemies in the old world. And it's not like those, uh, those old world battle lines completely disappeared in the new world. About the time of the Tweed scandal, 1870, 1871, there were actually riots in New York City. They were called the Orange Riots. And they weren't about oranges. <laughs> they were about orange, uh, orange men were uh, uh, Scotch-Irish Presbyterians who uh, centuries earlier had followed, had supported William of Orange in his fight against the Catholic King uh, James II. Of course, you all remember this from your, from your core classes. These, uh, every year in July... Uh, Orangemen back in uh, in Ireland would have would, would parades. They'd kind of march through Catholic areas of Northern Ireland, celebrating this victory of Protestants over Catholics. It's not just an old world thing. It was it was carried over into the New World and carried over violently. Where in New York City, 1870, 1871, Orangemen, uh, self-styled Orangemen, would march through Irish Catholic sections of the city, kind of rubbing their face in it, and riots ensued. So that's an example of how old world resentments carried over into the new. But Tweed himself is an example of the possibilities of American life. Uh, He is of that same stock, but many of his followers, if not most of his followers in politics, were in fact Irish Catholics. Tweed did not carry those old uh, resentments over. Uh, Tweed realized that he was in a cosmopolitan city, many different ethnic groups, a few uh, ethnic groups, all who could vote, and you don't get votes by alienating people or dragging up old uh, battles. So he was, Tweed, uh, though by native Anglo uh, perspective, was a little more American by virtue of being Presbyterian and Scottish as opposed to Irish and Catholic, nonetheless uh, kind of opened up to the Catholic community, especially the Irish Catholic community. And we see this in his inner circle, the, the so-called Tweed Ring that is associated, again, with this, uh, with this corruption. And the next image I have sent out to you is that of the Tweed Ring, and you see a ring of people all accusing uh, the other person of corruption. But there are four figures that are highlighted in this image. Uh, I think you can see the carryover from the Harper's cover. The, the fat guy on the left there is Tweed himself. But going from the right, the kind of dweeby little guy there uh, is Oki Hall, often called Elegant Oki. Uh, he was the mayor. He was the mayor of New York, but a mayor who was handpicked by the real power in New York, uh, Boss Tweed, the head of Tammany Hall. Uh, Oki was of uh, Anglo, native Anglo stock. And at this point, uh, it was uh, important to have somebody like that out in front, 
even if they're only a figurehead, it would help to kind of soften the blow of this immigrant political power. It would give, at least it was, they were trying to give um, critics uh, the, uh, the illusion, if you will, that Anglo-Americans were still in power. So that kind of figurehead, the public figure, the public face of the Democratic Party, at least at the level of mayor, around the time of Tweed was uh, Oakey Hall. So you've got Tweed, Scotch Presbyterian, uh, Oakey Hall, an Anglo-American, but the other two figures, the ones that are interesting right in the center of this picture here, are Irish Catholics. Richard Slippery Dick Connolly, uh, who served as controller in the city government, and Peter Sweeney, who served as commissioner of parks. Now, neither of these positions suggest great political power. I mean, you think, now I think, we oh, the mayor is the person who runs things. But no, 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 not at this time. These kind of more minor, uh, really unelected uh, bureaucratic positions like comptroller and commissioner of parks, uh, these were much more important uh, because these were positions that dealt with finances and jobs. So uh, half of the Tweed ring is Irish Catholic. Uh, but more importantly, uh, Tammany's rank and file was overwhelmingly Irish and Catholic. And Tweed was seen as their champion by Tweed's critics. Tweed was seen by the Irish Catholics themselves as their champion. So again, this sense of the, the possibilities of the new world to put aside old world resentments, they didn't say, oh, we're not going to vote or we're not going to support uh, a Scots Presbyterian. No, they supported him because he supported them. Um, but there was undoubtedly and, uh, and truly uh, corruption, uh, at least financial corruption, uh, at the heart of this relationship. In 1871, uh, the New York Times uh, charged Tweed with having looted the New York City Treasury to the tune of $45 million. Now, that may be chump change these days. Uh, but at the time, it amounted to a sum greater than the entire annual U.S. federal budget before the Civil War. So this is a lot of money. It's a lot of money. Uh, at the time of the indictment, uh, Tweed served as the city's commissioner of public works. Again, it seems like a kind of a minor uh, bureaucratic uh, job position, nothing that would uh, carry with it great power. But as I've said before, his true political power lay in his position as head of uh, Tammany Hall. Um, as head of Tammany Hall, he controlled the selection of candidates uh, that the Democratic Party would run. He picked the candidates. Uh, and he was in charge of making sure that those candidates went. Oh, yeah, Jack. Sorry, was Tweed uh, accused of stealing yeah. 45 million? Yes, yes, yes. He's, I mean, the, the, the Tweed ring is implicated because, as I'll say here, they all shared in it. But he, he was the focus of the accusation because he, everybody, uh, people like Nast and, and, the, and the critics realized that he was the power behind the throne. And so if, you know, it's, if you're going to, like, focus on somebody uh, to indict, it was going to be Tweed. Um, and again, as we'll see, the, the, the indictment was fair enough because, indeed, he was behind, uh, behind all this. Um, but uh, aside from enriching himself, uh, his, uh, his job as head of Tammany Hall, again, was to pick the slate of candidates uh, and make sure that they won. 
by any means necessary, so to speak, including uh, voter fraud, um, that is repeaters or ballot box stuffing or creative uh, uh, arithmetic maybe in the, in the counting, or, uh, or simple physical intimidation. Uh, and this is something all through uh, uh, late 19th century urban politics you'd see uh, you go to the voting pool and there'd be these monster guys with like two by fours or something and representing their candidate. And this is before necessarily secret ballots. So you go in there and people can see how you're voting. And uh, in I'm familiar with more specific examples from Chicago uh, in the late 19th century, but you know, election day in, in an American city in the late 19th century was uh, almost a riot day sometimes. If the, if the uh, election was particularly contested and there were sharp divisions, you could have brawls at... Um, at the voting booth, but think back uh, earlier in the semester when we looked at even the, the trustee election in Philadelphia. <laughs> you know, there was these are Catholics uh, voting on who's going to be trustees in a church, and they they turned to brawls. I think of the Orange Riots. You know, it's uh, the 19th century city is a very very violent city, and the things that we've seen in, in recent years, uh, this past year or so, are, are nothing compared to what was a fairly regular occurrence uh, in uh, in the 19th century, and often. Uh, again, often associated with, with voting. Um, so these tactics, uh, as well as uh, Tammany's Irish Catholic constituency, raised suspicions about Tweed long before the charges of graft and embezzlement were leveled in 1871. So again, the, his, Tweed's critics and the critics of this urban political culture uh, you know, had their suspicions all along, suspicions rooted in the fact that this urban political culture was Catholic and was Irish and was immigrant. But all that being said, those prejudices that they brought to, uh, the reformers brought to the case of Tweed, all that being said, the charges in fact were true. Uh, Tweed had spent several decades working his way up the Tammany ladder. Uh, By the late 1860s, he was able to engineer a restructuring of New York City politics that consolidated all the real power in the hands of those four people that made up the Tweed Ring. Again, people that were largely unelected. I mean, the mayor, of course, would be elected, but uh, how do they have all the power uh, without being elected? They have the power because they control the finances of the city. And for two straight years, the 1870 to 1871, uh, the city of New York, at Tweed's direction, borrowed money. Borrowed money sometimes directly uh, from banks, sometimes through bond, uh, uh, you know, creating bond programs uh, for people to uh, buy bonds with the hope of, uh, uh, as an investment, uh, and even attracting foreign investors into New York City. So you know, Tweed, Tweed was not too particular about where the money came from or how it, how it arrived. He was just very, uh, very interested in bringing money into the coffers of New York City. Now, of course, uh, he's not doing this uh, publicly, at least, simply to enrich himself. <coughs> um, why are people uh, giving all this money to the Treasury of New York City? That, to pay for building projects. This is a city that is growing like every city in the 19th century, uh, New York uh, more than any other. Uh, So the city is growing, it needs roads, it needs buildings, it needs a lot of stuff. That's true. Um, 
But how the stuff was built was how Tweed enriched himself. So he's dealing with other people's money, borrowed funds. Uh, how does he make himself rich? Does he simply stick it in his pocket uh, in kind of straight um, embezzlement? That would be a little too easy and a little too easy to, be, uh, to get caught at. His typical method was simply to bad, uh, excuse me, to pad building contracts. So say, um, uh, say a building, you know, you, you talk to the contractor and the building would cost maybe $10,000 and $1,870 to build. It's like, so Tweed says, okay, well, just give me a bill for $20,000. And you'll get your $10,000, you know, what you expect. And then me and my buddies will divide the other $10,000 among ourselves. Um, he could, in, with this arrangement, he could pretty much, again, divide um, the, the extra funds between the big four and then a couple of accountants. You know, you've got to keep track of this uh, and you've got to keep your accountants happy. Uh, however, um, in this process, there was at least one person that he did not keep happy. And a, uh, there's always an informer, isn't there? Always an informer, just like in the Molly Maguire's movie. Uh, um, a political enemy within the Democratic Party itself uh, eventually got hold of the accounts and turned it over to the New York Times. And so the, and that's how the, the Tweed Ring was brought down. Tweed's followers were um, shocked by the scale of the graft. The scale, but not the nature of the graft. Tweed's supporters generally accepted some kind of graft that is skimming off the top uh, as the cost of doing business. Why would they support such a corrupt politician, such a corrupt, immoral political practice? Um, because they knew that however much Tweed may have enriched himself, he, to some degree, shared the wealth, sometimes directly through patronage, that is, getting a job in the city government itself, uh, or even like giving a job to a cousin or a friend. You know somebody who got a job from Tweed. Tweed's a good guy. Uh, Maybe someday he can help me. So there's that kind of direct patronage job. Uh, sometimes there is indirect uh, financial benefit uh, through, say, a job on these building projects that were funded by borrowing. So, you know, Tweed is li- certainly lining his pockets on these building projects, but uh, a working-class New Yorker is maybe getting a job on one of these building projects. So for them, hey, it's a job, and I have, you know, one way or another, I have Tweed to thank for this, and so Tweed's okay with me. Uh, I don't care if he's getting his, his millions. I'm getting something. I'm feeding my family. And this is the, the level. Of, you know, this is survival. This is kind of basic survival. You can think of it uh, as a situation similar to what we saw in the Molly Maguire's film. You know, this is in the city. Uh, it's not coal mines, although if you, <laughs> you know, see any pictures of New York City in the late 19th century, it's almost as filthy as a coal mine. And, it is, uh, uh, and the, the struggle for survival is very similar. And... You know, what are your options if you're in, in the working class at this time? It's somebody like Tweed, who at least seems to care about you in some way, or the people that were operating the coal mines in eastern Pennsylvania who care nothing about you at all, are willing to let you starve and just discard you. So those are your options. You know, this, we do not live in an ideal world. And between those options, people were happy to support somebody like Tweed. 
perhaps uh, most dramatically in terms of Tweed's support for the working class of uh, New York City, uh, he earned the everlasting loyalty of many poor Irish Catholics during the Civil War uh, and all the controversy over the draft. Again, we didn't have too much time to go into the Civil War uh, in this class, but in 1863, the war was going badly, and uh, people in the North uh, were no longer signing up. Uh, they were no longer enlisting. They were no longer volunteering. And so Lincoln did what had never done, been done before. He instituted a, a federal draft. That is, people had to serve in the army. Uh, you had to serve um, unless you could buy your way out. If you could pay for a substitute, then uh, you didn't have to fight. Now, in terms of people wanting to fight or not, I mean, there's, a, there's a couple of considerations. Uh, as we, we talked about before, um, Irish Catholics, very, very patriotic, but also Democrats and suspicious of a war to end slavery. When the war was going badly, some of that uh, enthusiasm for the war waned, and they had to choose between kind of patriotism for their country and just simply staying at home and supporting their families. Uh, and many of them wanted to stay at home and support their families and didn't want to risk going off to war, dying and leaving their families destitute. Well, you could buy your way out if you, if you got a substitute to fight for you, except the, the cost of a substitute was $300. This is well beyond uh, the means of any uh, working class New Yorker. And so, in response to the draft, there were, dare I say it again, riots, kind of tremendous riots, some of the worst riots in American history. It's kind of interesting, the, uh, the 1860s and the 1960s. In both, there were protests against the draft from, for very different reasons and from very different people. But as tumultuous as the 1960s seem, the 1860s were far more violent in terms of the, the draft riots in New York City, draft riots in which Irish Catholics played a prominent role. Tweed comes to the rescue. He pays the bounty for many of these Irish Catholics, $300. So this isn't just Tweed lining his pockets. He's certainly using city funds. But he says, okay, you don't want to go to fight for war um, because you've got a family to support. I will pay your bounty. And they're like, thank you, Boss Tweed. Thank you, Boss Tweed. Uh, for... Uh, those who still did want to go to war, and maybe especially if you're, if you're a single guy, if you don't have a family to support, war may be your best option because there was a, there was a $300 signing bonus if you enlisted. Um, to keep Lincoln happy, uh, because Lincoln, again, Lincoln instituted the draft because he needed bodies. Um, to keep Lincoln happy, Tweed agreed to pay the signing bonus for workers who were willing to go to war, um, but... Um, were especially like if they were married men, but were concerned about their families. So again, he, he pays the bounty for some workers, uh, and he pays the signing bonus for other workers who are willing to go to the war. Either way, he is sharing the wealth, shall we say. And this, again, he becomes a hero for Irish Catholics uh, because of this. Uh, this bond of loyalty forged most dramatically during the Civil War between Tweed and Irish Catholics in New York only deepened through the 1860s. Just to give you another example, while serving in the state assembly in Tweed, his political positions, he jumped around all the time. Uh, it's not like today where you know, people slowly work their way up you know, 
uh, congressman, senator, president, things like that. The political position that he had at any one time was not as important as his position at head of Tammany. But for a time in the 1860s, he served in the state assembly, so the New York State Assembly. And he arranged for state funds to be used to support Catholic charities and Catholic schools. Now this, again, think back to the the school controversy that we looked at earlier. Uh, Protestants, uh, of course, objected to this. They didn't like state funds going to Catholic charities, but that they were willing to accept because Catholic charities were sometimes the only charities around. It was especially the women religious, the nuns, sisters, who worked in orphanages, like we've seen before, worked in orphanages, worked in hospitals. They were the ones caring for the poor when no one else would do it. And uh, even the, the Protestants, who are always suspicious of the poor, realized that this work had to be done, if only to kind of maintain some semblance of social order. And so they kind of held their nose and were willing to allow state funds to be used uh, to, uh, to fund Catholic charities that, you know, one could argue, served the common good, charities such as orphanages and hospitals. Schools were different. And as we've seen, schools were the real hot-button issue. And uh, it was, the, the laws were set that it was illegal uh, to have any money go to Catholic schools. Um, so, but, you know, what's the law between friends, as Tweed might say? Uh, he had to be a little sneakier about this, but he still managed to channel some funds to Catholic schools. But again, it was mainly the, the Catholic charities uh, that, he, um, that he supported with state money. Now, when Tweed was confronted with this and accused of being, you know, favoring Catholics, he would say, well, look, I, I send money to Protestant charities as well. Uh, if Catholic charities receive more, it's because they support me more. You know, it's as basic as that. You know, you get what you pay for. If I'll take Protestant votes, I don't mind. Uh, and if I get Protestant votes, then I will uh, return the favor by channeling some charity funds uh, into Protestants, Protestant organizations, but again, uh, Catholic charities, particularly those run by um, uh, religious sisters, nuns, were uh, the most important private charities in New York in the 19th century. They got money from Tweed, too. So again, another, uh, even if you know, you're not directly using an orphanage, Tweed, a Scotch Presbyterian, seems like a friend of Irish Catholics. He's a friend of the church. He's a friend to the good sisters that are, that are running the orphanages and the hospitals. So this is all great for Tweed. You know, he's, uh, he's enriching himself, uh, but he's spreading it around. And uh, through that, he is earning loyalty. Again, this isn't just like money. This isn't just like bribing something to vote for you. He is building up uh, a real kind of personal connection um, to, to voters. And the whole Tammany system is doing that. So, again, so it's not just about money. It is about personal connection. However, it was also about money and a lot of it. And uh, Tweed, we could say, uh, overreached in, uh, in his graft, again, to the tune of $45 million or so. So Tweed was indicted. Uh, he kind of spent uh, most of the, the rest of the 1870s in and out of jail. Sometimes he's, you know, he's convicted of some things, and then he gets a reprieve. One time, I think he even tried to escape to Spain or something like that, but he was caught and, and, and brought back. Uh, he died in, uh, in April of 1878, died very much kind of a broken man. Uh, now, again, so I've said um, Irish Catholics had a, you could say, a high tolerance for graft, but 
this just seemed to be going too far. Again, uh, it's not that he didn't uh, spread the wealth around, but he kept a disproportionate amount for himself. Um, still, uh, Irish Catholics, though disappointed and kind of embarrassed by, uh, by Tweed, because it seemed to confirm you know, all of the, um, the worst uh, criticisms and accusations made by uh, Protestants, Still, they remained loyal to Tammany Hall and the Democratic Party. Again, just to give you an example of, uh, of their thinking. Um, this is on uh, Roman numeral three, letter C. Uh, a writer for the Catholic newspaper, The Irish American, stated soon after the fall of Tweed, uh, one no more goes outside the party to purify it than one goes outside the church. And to give you a sense of that connection, and that you know, this wasn't just you know, political party. In, in this situation, was not just a political party. Um, it was for them almost as sacred as the church because it was just as central to their survival. And again, loyalty is everything, and so uh, they could not uh, turn their backs on Tammany and the Democratic Party simply because of corruption—a corruption that you know went too far. They want to reform it from within. And that they would do, to some degree, you know, reform in, in a kind of Tammany sense, thus Roman numeral three, Tammany and reform, uh, certainly uh, scaling back the kind of uh, the extremes of a tweed, um, uh, being a little more moderate in, uh, oh, yeah, uh, Matthew. So did this uh, corruption scandal have a broader impact on, like, the national Democratic Party, or is it mostly limited to New well, York City? And- good, good question. It certainly had national uh, implications. Uh, Harper's Weekly was a national magazine, and uh, NAS's cartoons again were spread across the country. And they did; uh, they had a tremendous effect in terms of linking um, political corruption with local urban politics. But at the same time, there, there's political corruption across the board. Um, in the late 1860s, the Grant administration, so this is the National Republican Party, the Republican Party general, their rhetoric is one of kind of moral uprightness. You can remember uh, when we looked at earlier uh, Grant's attack on Catholic schools in the name of you know, uh, uh, Republican political principles. Still, uh, Grant's, uh, Grant's administration was one of the most corrupt uh, ever, at least corrupt up to that point. So there was a lot of graft at the national level uh, it's interesting, though, that the, the, despite the graft in the Grant administration, the Republican Party still emerged as a kind of party of, of, of good government because they, they, you know, they spoke that rhetoric, whatever graft was going on. They spoke the language of good government and purity, uh, where the, the Tammany people and the Democrats never spoke that way. Even the, the Southern Democrats were not uh, quite so uh, righteous, if you will, as, as the Northern Republicans. And there is, uh, in coming out of both the, the, the corruption in the Grant administration and other scandals, there's a movement at the national level for what they call civil service reform. And this is the idea. I didn't want to uh, get too much into it here, but I mean, it's a good question that you ask. So to clarify, at the national level, this is playing out at the national level as well. Um, let me see. Excuse me here. Got to get my... A reliable marker. Uh, Civil service reform. 
Pendleton Act. That was around, uh, it's in the early 1880s. I don't have the exact date in my mind. Um, but here's the situation. Um, to cut down on graft, on like just giving your jobs, giving jobs to your friends, the idea is like, well, we, need, we don't need cronies in government. We need people that can actually do the job. And so uh, we need a civil service. That is, you're going to get a job in government uh, not because you know somebody, but because you're qualified. So there will be a civil service test you will take. Um, this is something um, that will be played out at the national level. There's a, the Pendleton Act. Uh, is a civil service reform act that uh, mandated that a greater percentage of federal government jobs would be uh, uh, acquired only through passing a civil service exam. This is, I mean, in terms of the, the Plunkett readings, this is one that I, it's a, it's a big issue with Plunkett as well. I, I chose not to focus on it for uh, reasons that we'll see here. But this is also being played out at the local level. So civil service reform is, a, is something that connects uh, national government politics and local politics. Uh, the, the whole Tweed scandal and just the general operation of local politics convinced many uh, reformers, again, largely kind of Protestant reformers, people from that first political culture, that the way to get good government was to have civil service reform, to have, ideally, every position in government uh, being staffed by somebody who is qualified. How do we know that they're qualified? Well, they've passed a civil service test. Now, uh, I'll digress a bit here. Um, because this actually this goes back to that one of those earlier figures I looked at, James Michael Curley, um, the uh, the oft times mayor and one time governor uh, in Boston and Massachusetts. Uh, he won his his first elected position. He, he earned when he was in jail. He was in jail because he took he and this other <laughs> friend of his took civil service exams for a poor Irish Catholic who needed a city job but couldn't pass the civil service exam. And uh, think, think of the civil service exam as like an SAT test. It's really, you know, whatever skills it might uh, assess or judge, it is primarily a way of weeding people out. Or even, dare I say, the college degree, right? You know, you go to apply for a job, you must have a four-year degree. Really? To do this job? Do I need a four-year degree? Yes, you do probably don't need a four-year degree to do many jobs, but it's, it's required. It's a way of weeding people out. And that certainly was the, the purpose of the civil service at, at the local level. And so Curley's response, I mean, he, he was breaking the law. Uh, he was uh, uh, taking a test for somebody else, misrepresenting himself. But he turned that to his advantage in his, in his campaign. His campaign slogan was, he did it for a friend, and he got elected. <laughs> You know, again, you do it for a friend, okay, that's the kind of guy. I want a friend like that, somebody who can help me out. So, uh, uh, again, this, this does, the local and the national uh, political conversation, if you will, do link up on civil service. But it is interesting how, even to this day, when we talk about corruption, it's, it's always localized. It's always the local politicians, particularly an ethnic politician, uh, that is the corrupt one. Even the, at the think of like contemporary politics, if, big, you know, if, if government at the, the federal level is attacked, it's not so much for corruption, but for like big government, big spending, too much. It's not that, it's not that bureaucrats are corrupt, it's that they're bureaucrats. Uh, but corruption continues to be uh, linked to 
uh, local politics, the smoke-filled room, if you will, and even uh, often, again, uh, with, still with Irish Catholics, even though, again, the Irish Catholic dominance of the city is, is long past, but that's, that, that image endures of a Tammany-style politician. The, ter- the term Tammany, uh, long after the demise of Tammany Hall, is still a part of our political vocabulary in America as a symbol of kind of corruption. Uh, Tammany knew this, and they knew they could not simply go on uh, conducting business as usual, and so uh, they began a kind of reform effort of their own. Uh, the fall of uh, Boss Tweed was actually a key transition point, not just in Tammany trying to uh, spruce up its image a bit to be more respectable, but in the shift from uh, a non-Irish Catholic leadership to Irish Catholic leadership. And the key figure here on your outline here is Honest John Kelly, who rose to power as the first Irish Catholic boss in New York in the 1870s. Kelly was a longtime Tammany operative. He knew how Tammany worked. Uh, But he had been ill and out of the country during the worst of the Tweed scandals, and so he had a relatively clean record. Now, again, most reformers weren't necessarily buying the honest uh, John uh, label, Um, but the emergence of this Irish Catholic leader only heightened the kind of ethnic tension. So it's kind of like it's bad enough when uh, a Scotch Presbyterian like Tweed was leading this Irish Catholic rabble. Now the Irish Catholics are in the leadership positions themselves. And again, there is, there's some truth even to that, that nasty uh, uh, political cartoon that we began with of this link between uh, Irish Catholics and local politics. It is true. Uh, it is true and best expressed by an anecdote often uh, linked to old honest John Kelly. Apparently, uh, in 1879, at the dedication of St. Patrick's Cathedral in New York, uh, Kelly rose up to speak. Now, Kelly, uh, just so you know, he was actually he was married to the niece of New York's Cardinal Archbishop John McCluskey. So, okay, there, there's a connection there. It's a family connection. So, reformers who might wonder about the church and local politics, you know, there, there's there's definitely a connection there. But Kelly, according to this story, apparently kind of raised his glass at this this dinner after the dedication of the cathedral. He raised his glass in triumph and said, God bless the two greatest organizations in the world, the Catholic Church and Tammany Hall. It's a brief pause. The person next to him says, oh, what's the second one? <laughs> you know, it's like they are one. Uh, and again, most people at the time, most, certainly most Irish Catholics at the time, would have no problem with that. Um, again, Irish supported Tammany uh, because Tammany supported them in any number of ways. Tammany was often the difference between life and death for, uh, for the, the poor of New York. And again, what are your options when you look at you know, power? Uh, who do you turn to for help? Uh, do you turn to Tammany Hall, that however much these people may enrich themselves, does seem to care about you in some way, brings you coal in winter when you have no heat, uh, brings you a turkey at Thanksgiving uh, when you have no food? Uh, or the respectable uh, mine owners in eastern Pennsylvania who were all above board and did everything, of course, according to the law, as we see not everything according to law, but presented themselves as being respectable, law-abiding, uh, even if they didn't care about their workers. This is, there's no choice here for, uh, for the poor in New York at the time. And again, uh, Tammany 
had that, uh, that for the Irish Catholics in New York, had that personal connection, certainly you know, connection to the church, uh, connection to neighborhood, ultimately connection to community. And so what I want to stress here is that though they are certainly dispersing material benefits, this isn't simply about material benefits. It's not just like, here's a check, go buy something for yourself. It is, uh, it is about a community. And I think even though um, the, the reading that we have for today, the, the excerpts from Plunkett of Tammany Hall, this, uh, this text, which uh, this, is, this is the book, this is the book that this comes from. Um, this is, most historians who deal with this will often focus on the civil service issue because uh, Plunkett just has all these things to say about civil service, how it's ruining politics and everything, destroying politics, because it was certainly undermining Tammany-style politics. But I want to uh, focus on another aspect of the book, uh, the ways in which uh, Plunkett presents Tammany in the context of community. Again, it's not simply distributing material benefits. You know, go down to Tammany and pick up a check and go home. It's about community and building uh, relationships. But building relationships through, certainly through, providing material needs. Uh, Plunkett, George Washington Plunkett, is your last image for today, the, uh, the photograph. Uh, this is uh, Plunkett at the uh, New York County Courthouse boot black stand, which is kind of his papal throne, if you will, where he speaks ex cathedra on uh, uh, sharing the political wisdom to, to New York. I mean, this is the kind of place that a, that a Tammany politician would be kind of right, right in the heart of things. Plunkett, like uh, Tweed, um, held a variety of positions, from anything from local alderman, kind of like a city councilman, uh, to New York State Assembly and senator. But again, the particular position didn't matter so much as his access to uh, patronage jobs. This is how he built loyalty uh, for voters. And this is also how he enriched himself. And again, think of um, uh, the, the Tweed scandal and the, the problem of kind of excessive enrichment. Plunkett of Tamaniel is written 30 years or so after, 1905. Uh, things have changed somewhat. Uh, some distinctions, shall we say, have been introduced. But there's no, there's no pretense here. There's no like, oh, you know, we, we're, we're honest politicians. We're above board. We would never enrich ourselves through politics. No. He's very upfront. The, the first chapter is very upfront about uh, the fact that he does, in fact, enrich himself through politics. But he makes a key, I don't know if I'd say Aristotelian, but a key moral distinction here, perhaps one that you haven't encountered in your philosophy classes. The distinction between honest graft and dishonest graft. Again, just to read you uh, this, this passage here. Everybody is talking these days about Tammany men growing rich on graft. But nobody thinks of drawing the distinction between honest graft and dishonest graft. There's all the difference in the world between the two. Yes, many of our men have grown rich in politics. I have myself. I've made a big fortune out of the game, and I'm getting richer every day. But I've not gone in for dishonest graft. Blackmailing gamblers, saloon keepers, disorderly people. And neither is any of the men who have made big fortunes in politics. There's an honest graft, and I'm an example of how it works. I might sum up the whole thing by saying, I see my opportunities, and I took them. Just let me explain by examples. My party's in power in the city. And it's going on to take a lot of public improvements. While well, I'm tipped off, that they're going to lay out a new park in a certain place. I see my opportunity and I take it. I go to that place and I buy up all the land I can in the neighborhood. Then the board of this or that makes its plan public. 
And there was a rush to get my land, which nobody cared particularly for before. Ain't it perfectly honest to charge a good price and make a profit on my investment in foresight? Of course it is. Well, that's honest graft. So again, uh, a, let's say a, a, a unique, particular kind of moral distinction, but one there nonetheless. Uh, again, this, is the, this didn't assure reformers that, he was, that everything was above board. Uh, it certainly seems uh, like, uh, and, and was, uh, just kind of a justification for what he's doing. But he goes on uh, to make a more important distinction. Certainly the honest, dishonest graft is, uh, is intended to be comical. All, all of these reflections are they're done in a very kind of light way. This is not a work of political theory, uh, though we'll see he takes on political theory a little later. Uh, but he goes on to make a distinction that is, for all of the lightness in tone of this, that is very, very important. And he does it in a, in a chapter where he's uh, responding to one of these exposés that was written at the time, a book, The Shame of the Cities, again, that's exposing all this corruption, uh, that's exposing the graft that he's, in some ways, kind of freely admitting to. Um, this Shame of the Cities, written by Lincoln Steffens, just oh, um, go to the passage here. Steffens means well... But like all reformers, he don't know how to make distinctions. He can't see no difference between honest graft and dishonest graft. And consequently, he gets things all mixed up. There's the biggest kind of difference between political looters and politicians who make a fortune out of politics by keeping their eyes wide open. The looter goes in for, uh, in for himself alone without considering his organization or his city. The politician looks after his interests, the organization's interests, and the city's interests all at the same time. See the distinction? For instance, I ain't no looter. The looter hogs it. I never hogged. I made my pile in politics, but at the same time, I served the organization and got more big improvements for New York City than any other living man. And I never monkeyed with the penal code. So, so and you know, this is like rationalization, just for sure, but again, for his constituents, if they're getting jobs on these, these improvements, these building projects, that's fine. It doesn't have to be equal. Uh, if anything, you know, the kind of fancy clothes he might wear would be something to aspire to for some of them. But the big key is this distinction between uh, a politician and a looter. A looter keeps it all from themselves. And you could say, looking back, Tweed, given the enormous disparity between what he took in and what he distributed, Tweed would be judged a looter, keeping too much from himself. And that's the sin. That's the immorality, when you keep too much for yourself. But you spread it around, you take a little more for yourself, okay, that's, you know, you're the leader, you deserve to get a little more. But as long as you're spreading it around, let's say fairly, if not exactly equally, then, uh, then you're fine. And again, think of what the alternatives are. The coal, uh, the coal owners in eastern Pennsylvania, the, the slaughterhouse owners that we'll be looking at uh, later this semester after break, and slaughterhouse owners on the back of the yards neighborhood in Chicago. Um, so it's not that Tammany has no moral code. They just happen to have a different one. Uh, and the difference between right and wrong here is primarily in how you treat others. It's not strict adherence to the rules. Because for Tammany people, politics is not about rules. It's not about ideas. It's about people. And it's kind of, kind of interesting. Now, I assume most of the people in this class are, are history majors. You, know, you were never led astray by, say, political science. <laughs> political science. 
uh, well, uh, Plunkett himself has a few things to say about political science and book learning and all that. Uh, now, that's not to say that uh, Plunkett does not have his political theory. He does. Like Aristotle in the ancient world and the founding fathers, Plunkett believes that politics is rooted in human nature. Politics is a reflection of human nature. Plunkett just happens to have a different conception of human nature than maybe Aristotle or the founding fathers. And this is in, in chapter six. Chapter six, to hold your district. So it's like to hold your district, to get reelected. To hold your district. Study human nature and act according. There's only one way to hold a district. You must study human nature and act according. You can't study human nature in books. Sorry, people. Uh, books is a hindrance more than anything else. If you've been to college, so much the worse for you. Uh, you'll have to unlearn all you learn before you can get right down to human nature. And unlearning takes a lot of time. Some men can never forget what they learned at college. Such men may get to be district leaders by a fluke, but they never last. To learn real human nature, you have to go out among the people, see them, and be seen. I know every man, woman, or child in the 15th district, except them that's been born this summer. I know some of them, too. I know what they like, what they don't like, what they're strong at, what they're weak in, and I reach them by approaching at the right side. For instance, here's how I gather in the young men. I hear of a young fellow that's proud of his voice, thinks he can sing fine. I ask him to come around to Washington Hall and join our glee club. He comes and sings, and he's a follower of Plunkett for life. Another young fellow gains a reputation as a baseball player in a vacant lot. I bring him into our baseball club. That fixes him. You'll find him working for my ticket at the polls every uh, uh, working for my ticket at the polls next election day. And then there's the fellow that likes rowing on the river. The young fellow that makes a name as a waltzer on the block. The young fellow that's handy with his jukes. I rope them in, all in, by giving them opportunities to show themselves off. I don't trouble them with political arguments. I just study human nature and act according. So again, he's building, uh, uh, he's, he's building up loyalty, not simply through uh, politics directly, or not discussing the great political theories or ideas or what needs to be done uh, to improve the city or anything like that, by giving people something to do, by giving them a social life encouraging the things that they like to do, that they then come to associate with, uh, with their political party. And a lot of, it is uh, interesting, just as a quick aside here, a lot of these activities um, that were done through political parties or through uh, fraternal uh, organizations, uh, often ethnic fraternal organizations, gradually get absorbed by the schools. The school becomes everything in the spirit of the civil service room. We have to get people, you know, playing baseball for Tammany Hall. No, no, no. Play for the high school. You want to sing? Don't sing for Tammany Hall. Sing at your high school. Well, these activities, sports, um, music, the arts, uh, entertainment, if you will, that people uh, developed in this, this political context, in the context of these political clubs, gradually the school absorbs everything. Plunkett could see that happen, thus his, uh, his bias against schools and book learning. Uh, so, uh, he, again, he sees human nature and acts according. He gives people something to do. He, he builds up kind of a community life through things that are not directly related to politics, singing, playing sports, but that have political benefits for him. 
He gives them something to do. He encourages their activities. They pay him back by voting for him. And again, this is kind of a multiplier effect. Uh, it just takes doing this for a few people, and then people that may not directly benefit say, well, who should I vote for uh, this November? And it'll be, oh, Tammany's great. You know, they, they help me sing. They help me play baseball. Um, in terms of human nature, uh, and aside from singing and, and playing sports, uh, Tammany also recognized more basic aspects of human nature, the need for food, clothing, and shelter. And this is uh, continued in a later section in this chapter uh, 6, How to Hold Your District, Study Nature, and Act According. Later he writes, in terms of this direct aid, material, providing for the material needs of people. Plunkett writes, what tells in holding your grip on your district is to go right down among the poor families and help them in different ways they need help. I've got a regular system for this. If there's a fire in 9th, 10th, or 11th Avenue, for example, any hour of the day or night. I'm usually there with some of my election district captains as soon as the fire engines. If a family is burned out, I don't ask whether they're Republicans or Democrats, and I don't refer them to the charity organization, which would investigate their case in a month or two and decide they were worthy of help about the time they're dead from starvation. I just get quarters for them, buy clothes for them if their clothes were burned up, and fix them up until they get things running again. It's philanthropy, but it's politics too. Mighty good politics. Who can tell how many votes one of these fires bring me? <laughs> it's like, is he setting the fires himself? <laughs> um, uh, the poor are the most grateful people in the world. And let me tell you, they have more friends in their neighborhoods than the rich have in theirs. If there's a family in my district in want, I know it before the charitable societies do. And me and my men are first on the ground. I have a special corps to look up such cases. The consequence uh, is that the poor look up to George W. Plunkett as a father Come, uh, come, uh, come to him in time of trouble. Don't for, and don't, excuse me, I mangled this last thing. The, the consequence is that the poor look up to George W. Plunkett as a father. Come to him in trouble and don't forget him on election day. So again, these are kind of, there's a, an exchange here. You need something, I need something. And I just want to comment a bit on uh, one, one part of this passage where he talks about the Charity Organization Society. Again, this is, uh, a big distinction, at least at the time, between um, generally like the, the, the Protestant charity organizations, which he's referring to, and the Catholic ones. That among the Protestant, there was much more the sense of a kind of suspicion of the poor. Uh, hmm, if you're poor, why are you poor? Why do you need food? You know, haven't you been saving your money? Have you been irresponsible? Are you a drunk? This sense of like, we need to determine if you are truly needy or just a lazy good for nothing. This attitude was creeping into some Catholic charity as well, but in general, the Catholic notion from the Bible that the poor you will always have with you meant, well, it's not your fault. Look at, I mean, look at the city. The city's full of poor people. You're going to say, like, it's your fault because you're poor? So in, with the Catholic organizations, uh, charity organizations, there were generally far fewer questions asked, but the Protestant ones were notorious, again, for undergoing uh, this kind of moral scrutiny of the poor to make sure that they weren't lazy, good-for-nothings, you know, looking for a handout. And these attitudes, of course, are still with us today. I've spoken about Tammany uh, mainly in terms of Irish Catholics, and I think certainly in in the public profile of Tammany and the leadership at this time, they were uh, the dominant group. Uh, But New York was changing. Certainly by the late 19th century, there's a new wave of immigrants, you know, Early in the semester, we looked at the Germans and the Irish coming in the middle of the 20th century. But late 20th century, a new wave of immigrants, largely from southern and eastern Europe. So a lot of Italians. In New York City, it's largely kind of Italians and Jews. 
Uh, you might think, oh, with Italians, there's going to be a, a natural uh, religious connection between the Irish, uh, with the Irish, but that really didn't play out in some ways. In terms of Tammany politics, the, the alliance was more with, with Jews than with, uh, with Italians. As we've seen before, earlier in the semester, it's not like a common faith was able to overcome ethnic divisions within the church. In some ways, it almost kind of increased the rivalry to some degree. But uh, the, the demographics of New York are changing. New immigrants are coming in. What's, uh, what's Tammany to do with them? Historians have often made a contrast between kind of East Coast urban politics and the Midwest, saying that the Irish in, uh, on the East Coast were a bit more tribal, like less willing to bring in other ethnic groups, where uh, in the Midwest, like Chicago kind of being the best example, that there were much more kind of big tent in terms of ethnic groups. There certainly is some truth to that, but in Plunkett's own account, um, Tammany sees, uh, uh, sees the new immigrants, particularly the Jewish immigrants, and you know, religion is not, is not a divider for them. It's like the, you know, every person represents a vote. And like before, he says, I don't, I don't care if you're a Republican or Democrat, I'll help you if I can get your vote. So when it comes to the new immigrant groups, I don't care what your ethnic uh, group is, you know, everyone in New York City is a potential voter, and I'm going to do what I can to get your vote. And this, he says here uh, toward the end of the, the last section that I, last selection that I gave for you. And he's talking about Johnny Ahern, Johnny Ahern of the third and fourth districts. Again, one of these, they call them ward healers, just the guys that are out in the streets, uh, kind of making uh, contact with the people, uh, determining what they need, uh, and providing them with, uh, with what they need. And so uh, he writes about this. Um, Johnny Ahern of the third and fourth districts uh, are just the men for such places. So he's talking about there's, there's different places in the city, different ethnic groups. Johnny Ahern's uh, perfect for the third and fourth district. Ahern's constituents are about half Irishmen and half Jews. He is as popular with one race as with the other. He eats corned beef and kosher meat with equal nonchalance. And it's all the same to him whether he takes his hat off in church or puts it down over his ears in a synagogue. So again, when in Rome, do as the Romans, you know, he's this example here of a, uh, certainly Johnny Ahern, it's, a, it's an Irish name, but he moves freely uh, among uh, Irish Catholics and, uh, and Jews, Jewish immigrants. And this, this Irish-Jewish uh, alliance, if you will, was uh, very uh, important in New York at this time. It was certainly in the entertainment world. Broadway was dominated by the Irish, kind of passed the torch to, uh, to Jews. And something we'll look at later in the semester when Tammany produces its first presidential candidate, Al Smith. Uh, Smith's team around him is kind of... Uh, election team is uh, largely Jewish in composition. So this kind of Irish-Jewish alliance that uh, Plunkett points to here would continue on in Tammany, even to Tammany's first uh, attempt at winning a national uh, election. Uh, okay, so on, on that stuff, any, any questions? On... Okay, just to, to finish up here then. Um, especially in that, that last passage that I read to you, um, by Plunkett's account, politics seems capable of uniting people across lines of ethnicity and religion. Uh, but, of course, the, the reality is more complicated. Uh, we've already seen how even within the Catholic Church, uh, ethnic divisions undermine unity. Uh, Catholics who you know, do share a common faith, nonetheless, were deeply divided 
by ethnicity because the ethnicity represented, in some cases, like, like with the Germans, a different language, but in all cases, certainly a different culture, and culture mattered. That faith was not enough to unite people across different cultures. Um, in, uh, in the next beginning of the next class, and for the next couple of weeks, we're going to keep our attention on the city, but turn to a different city, uh, the other kind of great city, the industrial era, era Chicago, and again, a particular neighborhood within the city, the back of the yards, the slaughterhouse section of Chicago. And we're going to look at the ways in which this largely Catholic neighborhood nonetheless was home to ethnic divisions that remained strong well into the 1930s. Uh, we saw already how certain kind of uh, church leaders tried to overcome these divisions by making everybody the same, uh, by getting rid of ethnicity, by participating in the public school system and such. Uh, that wasn't going to work in Chicago. Those ethnic ties were very, very strong. But what we'll see um, coming out of the back of the yards neighborhood in the late 19th century into the 1930s is a new kind of politics, one that was in many ways rooted in the kind of practical uh, concerns of Tammany, but was able to uh, kind of move beyond them and form something like a principled language of justice, uh, never going into the, the moralism of the Protestant reformers, but still some broader language of justice, a kind of a principled language of justice that was, uh, that was needed in response to the, the greatest economic uh, challenge facing uh, the, the, uh, the city in the late 19th and early 20th century, the Great Depression, uh, a depression that, that just didn't seem to end, didn't follow the cycle of pr- uh, previous ones, and that called for something more than the type of um, uh, direct kind of material aid that Tammany was able to provide um, before the depression. Okay, so we'll see you all on Thursday. Thanks for listening to C-SPAN's Lectures in History podcast. C-SPAN has a new podcast about books. Each episode delves into news about the nonfiction book publishing industry with publishing experts and insiders. You'll also hear reports on the latest nonfiction bestsellers, trends, and book reviews. About books, find it wherever you get your podcasts.